Hey folks, this is Boris Jabez, and you're listening to The Sequel Show. If you're new to the show, this is a space I use to talk about all things data and data-driven operations with some of my favorite people from across the industry. Some of these conversations are one-on-one, sometimes we do group conversations, and even sometimes we get into hearty debate about the role of data teams and data technology and all the changes going on in our industry. Today I was joined by the co-founder and CTO of Monte Carlo, Lior Gavish. As many of you might know, Monte Carlo makes some great tools for monitoring data, which we talked a bunch about in this episode. As I like to do with a lot of our guests, we took a deep dive into his background and the spark that led to starting Monte Carlo. Along the way, we discussed what it's like to move from a security company to a data company, how data teams should go about detecting and managing operational issues, the infamous data mesh, and how you should embrace a failure is good mindset. I hope you enjoy the conversation. And without further ado, this is Lior. Hey, folks. <laughs> I'm here with Lior Gavish. Lior, why don't you tell everyone who you are and what you do? Sure. Hi, Boris. Thanks for having me. My name is Lior, and I'm one of co-founders of a company called uh, Monte Carlo. We do uh, data observability. Before uh, Monte Carlo, I used to run engineering at a company called Barracuda, which is a cybersecurity firm. And, and before that, I had another startup uh, that was acquired by Barracuda. I guess we'll talk about it later, but I'm very excited to be here today. And yeah, looking forward to a great conversation. Very nice. Okay, so so you, how did you get to Barracuda? Then let's 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 tell me tell me what this company was that you worked at beforehand. Yeah, of course. So back in 2012, I founded along with 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 a very good friend. We started a security startup. It's called Sukasa. And we were working on the, back in the days, Dropbox was growing extremely fast and people were increasingly using Dropbox to, to manage their data and manage their files. Not data in the way that, it, that we think about it today, but at least unstructured data. And they were also doing it in the context of business with information that's potentially sensitive or regulated. And at Sukasa, we actually try to help those businesses adopt Dropbox and more generally cloud services in a way that's that's a little bit better controlled and, and and managed and kind of safer from a security and compliance standpoint. Yeah, I think I remember having been in the Valley in the same vintage as you, that there was a strong element at the time, right, that Dropbox was kind of like unencrypted, just amazing, easy of use kind of storage, but but really not secure in the kind of cryptography sense of the term. And my my memory was that that was a core part of the the pitch was not just the controls right but you were I think you were early to this kind of idea of we shouldn't have kind of access to your data right yeah 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 one of the one of the capabilities that that we worked on at Sukasa is to help customers encrypt their data which served both two purposes one was to make sure nobody has access to the data other than the customer also kind of making sure that that Dropbox or, or whatever cloud service they doesn't gain access to their data and then the the other side of it it allowed access control so when you share stuff with other people you could actually 
control what they do with those files, like who gets to open them, who doesn't get to open them. One of the things that the cloud services allow is to kind of take information and spread it around in a way that, that IT departments kind of didn't have to deal with before the, before the cloud came in. And so encryption is also a way to, to kind of control the, the sprawl of information, where it goes and, and how it gets used. So yeah, it was a very, very exciting time. Yeah. Did you, did you find that people agreed with you or resonated with you on this kind of obsession with, let's call it control and, and, and kind of encryption? Or was that something you needed to convince people of? Well, it, it depends which people, right? Like when you talk to security professionals who, who like to, I mean, obviously it, 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 it does diminish from the convenience, right? Like when you encrypt something, it makes it harder to access and therefore it reduces some of the convenience for for, pe- for the people that use the software. And, and security is always about balancing convenience with, with like security requirements, right? With the desire to control access and to understand where, where things go. And so I think security people did like that idea and it resonated with, and end users were okay with it as long as it did not impede their their user experience too much. So so the whole uh, a lot of our efforts went into making the whole experience kind of seamless and and easy for the end user so that we can deliver that value to security folks without overly annoying end users. It's I I've always come across in my in my career that there I I think broadly speaking I agree with you that people are mostly concerned with convenience, but there's always, especially with security, there's always these certain kind, a certain kind of nerd who's just really into it for the sake of it. And so, you know, as any startup has to always find like its initial fans, I was kind of curious if like that's where your initial fans were, like the kind of, I want the ease of use, but I really, really care about the the, the secrecy. But I guess it sounds like as with any evolution, it, it really landed towards more the, the control uh, that companies would get for this, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's first and foremost, people adopted it for for control and sometimes compliance, right? Sometimes a lot of our customers were in healthcare and were subject to HIPAA compliance and under HIPAA, you need to encrypt and protect information, right? And right. you need to control who has access to it and you need to have an audit log of who uh, accessed it. And, and so a lot of our customers were, were actually trying to solve some of their compliance needs and or secure policies with, with something like Scuff. So already, right, people are going to wonder like, okay, so this guy worked on a security company and now is running a data company. So before we get into that, I'm still even curious, like how did you, how does someone graduate college and decide I want to build a data security compliance company? <laughs> what even made you want to get into that? It's a great question. So even before I, I started Sukasa, I actually... I came from a machine learning background. So I, I, I used to work on, on algorithms initially in, in, in computer vision and then later on in defense and then later on in NLP. And, and so actually I did not have a lot of background in security when I started that company. And the reason I, I really got excited about that space is just the need, right? What I'm genuinely really passionate about is is helping people solve problems that they have in, in usually in their work lives and and the need was so strong back then we just saw companies struggling with how are we going to adopt the cloud and it's happening whether we want it or not right there's 
back then it was very people used to complain about shadow IT, right? About yeah, uh, individual employees adopting cloud services and 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 kind of risking think, some you, of I, the. I mean, pretty sure there's shadow data organizations at this point too, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure there are. They exist all around us. Yeah, and yeah. So I really got excited about the need and and about the pain and and that. Solving the technical problem was kind of exciting because it, it could have that impact on people and, and, and kind of help make, make work a little bit better. Yeah. I, I was telling a colleague the other day, speaking of shadow IT, as you're right, the term I feel like has kind of faded, but the concept, of course, remains. But there's long standing kind of versions of this. And my first job was at Microsoft. I worked on Visual Studio on, on tools. But I had friends who worked on Excel, which is, of course, the, the crown jewel of the company. And they also were struggling with this problem of rogue Excel spreadsheets mm-hmm. that every company on the planet, this is over a decade ago now, they had spreadsheets that had been one time downloaded or whatever or synced or pushed uh, data into. And then, and then they were running some weird department somewhere off this spreadsheet and no one knew because that was really disconnected, right? It's not even like the things I deal with at, at Census today where people upload a CSV into Salesforce, which is at least an online system. This would just be a spreadsheet on a physical yeah. hard disk that someone was like using to drive a business process. <laughs> yeah. So it's a, I think it's a long-standing it's a- problem. And I have found in my conversations with people that I think a lot of us who work on products like you do have a kind of a some fundamental desire to try to bring order to that chaos beyond just like I can build a great tool. It's like how do we how do we ensure that everything is known? <laughs> yes. Uh, it must bother I, you at some level. Uh, it's okay. It can call me a control freak. But yeah, I think it's a good it's a good analogy, right? Like those that that shadow data that goes around the org and and how do you how do you help people still do what they want to do, which is use data, which is a great thing, but do it in a way that that makes sense, right, for the company and and I I, I would I don't know, but I would imagine that that census was somewhat inspired by that. Mm-hmm. By yeah, that experience, I also, right? I also will take the the, uh, the descriptor. Well, actually, okay, so connect the dots for me. How did you end up, while you were working at Barracuda on these security products, what was the spark that led to, to Monte Carlo? Oh, that's a great question. So over the years, Sukasa itself evolved in many ways. And just in a nutshell, we had this like wonderful solution solution to encrypt your data. But then immediately the question was like, what do we need to encrypt? What, what is even out there, right? So it turned into from a how do we encrypt this data kind of question into a really an analytic question, like what's out there? Where is it going? What should we even, what are the risks that we have in terms of data exposure? So we started working on those and some of those problems at Tsukasa and, and I kind of gradually went back from into my analytics and machine learning roots. And then at, at Barracuda, when, when we were acquired by, by Barracuda, we... We expanded the scope even further. Barracuda has a portfolio of, of, of a lot of solutions in, in security. And I ended up spending most of my time on building kind of the next gen products at Barracuda, like the products that were really driven by analytics, by machine learning for a variety of different use cases, including a lot of uh, fraud detection. So that that was kind of like back to where I came from. And, and the reason Monte Carlo was founded was, well, first and foremost, I had a 
a great co-founder that 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 highly encouraged me to to join her to to build Monte Carlo. Uh, that's another story. The the thing that really got kind of that that sparked the idea in my mind was just I was thinking about those products that we were building in Barracuda that essentially served tens of millions of of, of end users and were highly you know dependent on, on high quality analytics on high quality models on data being processed properly and when I thought about the times when we let our customers down and the reality is that every product lets their customers down sometimes I realized that more often than not. I want to say 80% of the time, it was actually related to the reliability and quality of the data that was being processed and flowing through our pipelines. And only a minority of cases were actually related to, to what software engineers usually think about when, when, when they think about reliability. So kind of infrastructure reliability, like you want to make sure your servers are running or application reliability. You want to make sure your, your app is running without error and, and, and high performance and, and your databases are performing. All of that accounted for, for much less of, of our downtime, if you will, than, than data issues. And, and when I started thinking about it more deeply, that alone, why is that? That alone is fascinating, Lior, yeah. right? You're saying that at an app in a security product company, on the product side, the customers would feel downtime pain, let's call it, more because of data issues than because of app or infrastructure issues. Yeah, absolutely. That wasn't exactly right. And and when I when I thought about why that is, and that, that remains hypothesis, because I, I, I can't I can't I don't know what the counterfactual is, but my hypothesis was that look, at the end of the day, there's established practices and tooling to manage the reliability of software products, right? It's something that that the industry as a whole has been working on for for decades now, right? There's it constantly evolves and there's new trends, but there's a way to do DevOps, there's a way to do or site reliability engineering. There's a lot of tools that come with it to help you do that. But when you look at your data pipelines, good luck. You have to either hope for the best or 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 build uh, a lot of it internally to to tighten the system and and maybe maybe some of the people that have been in data for a while maybe when you used to ship a report once a quarter or once a month maybe it didn't matter because like someone would do it manually and extract that Excel and maybe double check and triple check it and validate it and make sure it's good but in a scenario where you're served real time information across many, many users and many, many sources can't do that anymore. You kind of take, you had to take a more operational approach. And, and my hunch was that people are going to build more data products, not, not fewer of them in the future. And that it's going to be important to, to make them reliable in the same way that, 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 that we do with kind of more traditional software engineering. Right. Yeah. So Monte Carlo made a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. You can't, you can't optimize or fix what you don't measure. Right. So I think you're right. Okay. I I have, you've, you've, You've actually generated like maybe at least three questions in my mind, so I'm gonna I'm gonna take them in reverse chronological order or whatever. <laughs> One thing you said along the way when you were when after Sukasa got acquired and, and you, that that beginning stage of what you were gonna work on next at Barracuda, you said something interesting there that that you were people you gave people this capability right of storing files securely mm-hmm. and. You found that that was, you said, not enough, right? That, that people actually were starting to, act, like, you were trying to understand what the files were and why. So was that, was that because they were coming to you or because you were trying to figure out 
what is going on in this value chain? And there was just not enough, you know, value provided by just storing data. And you're like, is that what led you down the search of like, what are they even storing this for? And that's how you figured out that that's actually th these higher level needs. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely came from our customers back then. They would like say, oh, cool. Like I should probably protect my information. But it was also clear that you're not going to do that for everything, right? It does add some friction and has some some implications. So so how do you so like they asked us, like, what should we what should we encrypt? What's the highest risk in our in our system? And we were like, oh, interesting question. Let me get some data for you. And that that's kind of how things evolved. Yeah. This to me, I think, is a like life lesson for anyone building products. And effectively, since most people inside a company should model what they do as a product, I think there's a real life lesson there, right? Which is your first couple users will just say, give me the tool, give me the, give me the file storage. And then as you go out, as I say, like in concentric circles of users, people want to be told what to do to some degree. They, they, want, they, they know they kind of need it, but they don't know exactly how and why and, and what they should prioritize. So you're saying you went from saying, from giving people a tool that stored files securely to telling them what files to store to eventually saying, let's just take over that entire workflow in bespoke products at Barracuda. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and we've had the same experience at Monte Carlo, right? Like we built this, first thing we built was this like monitoring solution that helps you create observability into your data and under in and kind of put in place monitoring and alerting in, in data incident resolution. But then it was unsurprisingly, our customers immediately asked us like, okay, cool. So what should I, what are the things that I should actually monitor? What are the things that I should prioritize? And we were like, oh, let me get some data for you. And so we built a lot of features actually and, and pretty early in our in our life cycle around helping people map what our the key assets in their data ecosystem. Like what are the tables that are being used extensively for, for analytics, for modeling, for, for really any downstream application, right? And, and it actually made us build automated lineage into our solution because to answer these questions, we need to know who's doing what and how and what are the dependencies between different assets. And, and so we've built a lot of capabilities, basically giving people analytics about their data about their about their analytics which is a little bit meta but actually this is one of the features that that our customers value the most right like just understanding what's out there and what what needs to be reliable in the first place so that's been i've, I've been really living that lesson over and over again it is i i don't know if it's good or bad or concerning that Arguably, the biggest problem at most organizations is that they don't know themselves. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Because could you imagine if 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 instead of it'd be like you asking like, what are the clothes I wear the most? Could you tell me? It's like, well, don't you? Right. But at a certain size of organization, of course, you you don't know. But it's very interesting that it's because I I could totally see how you need to monitor data if you're going to improve its reliability. But I do think it's a leap right from there to go. I didn't realize what data I needed to monitor. And and I think we probably have to think about in data organizations of trying to help you potentially like profile the organization the same way we profile code on the software side, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly right. And, and, and there's, there's this, I mean, some people uh, call this idea like data mesh, 
I'm sure you've heard the term, but like, but, but, and, and whether you kind of like the ideas of data mesh or you don't, I think this idea of kind of having a little bit more structure of about around the data ecosystem and what things exist out there and who's the owner, right? It's, it's in a large enough organization. It's not, it's not just going to be one person or one small team, but who's owning it and who's accountable to, to productize it really, to make it usable, right? Because what we're doing essentially, and, and you, you guys have helped tremendously is we're taking data and we're, we're productizing it, right? Like we're putting it in the, end, in the hands of other people not the original creators. Right. We're even putting it in, in the tools that, those, that those users are used to consuming, right? If, if you're using census. And, and how do you as a, as a data team kind of manage that entire thing and make sure that that product, I, I think when you productize things, there's a lot of things that you need to think about. Obviously at Monte Carlo, we've, we've worked a lot on, on kind of the idea of how do you make those products reliable or how do you at least measure and manage SLAs around them as, as you're kind of making it readily available in real time almost to yeah. a lot of other people that don't have, yeah. but they don't understand the guardrails or, or how to use it in a you know responsible way. So you kind of have to do it for them. Yeah. I mean, the way I think about this is there's, there's only one, there's only one way we have found, I think in the world that we know of to reach people in a scalable way, which is to ship products. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I mean, IT teams don't ship products, right? IT teams serve a decently large number of humans through service or mm -hmm. law firms or whatever. And I think we all generally find those approaches to be either unscalable or unfriendly. And so everyone's goal should be to try to be the most magnified, leveraged impact possible. And and so, yeah, it's how do you productize what you do? And, and, and data is just one of many things. And I think it's helpful to try to think about for people what what are what is the gap right between what they're doing and what it would mean to be productized. And so on the one hand of course it's all right actually measure what you're doing and and make sure it's reliable <laughs> otherwise people will not use it and that's a bad product. You can look at it from our perspective and saying is like get it into the hands of the people who want to use it. Mm -hmm. But I think there's probably a lot of other things around our space that people need to to do to to productize their data. Mm -hmm. I'll even give you one that you said here that I'd love to see your take on it. You casually use the word SLAs, right? And I don't know if everyone even knows what an SLA is. And to me, an SLA, my definition of it, right? I mean, is, is that you are making a commitment to your stakeholders that this product will be usable at least X percent of the time. And then you can get precise about what the product is and what usable means. But one of the key things that most of us in engineering understand is that there is no such thing as 100%. Mm -hmm. the, there's no such thing as perfectly deliverable, which is, I think, confusing. If I told my parents, I think they would find that confusing at first, right? So how, how does one even get people towards thinking in terms of SLAs, and building out SLAs for whatever they're doing. Like, it seems like a kind of daunting task. It is absolutely daunting. And, and anyone that's ever done it would tell you that it's, it is daunting and it is oftentimes more art than science, right? Because like, even if you think about ops people think about SLAs, like 
if you think about you're consuming Gmail, right? Or any application, any cloud application, right? There's some stuff that's really obvious, right? Like you go to gmail.com and you expect, you expect the page to load, right? But then in reality, the experience is much more intricate, right? Like you want to be able to, I don't know, receive emails. And when you receive emails, you want to be able to do it within a certain time delay, right? If you got your email a day later, that's probably... Not Maybe the world experience. would be a better place. I don't know. I'm not sure. Maybe it might. And and, and yeah. So so define. So going through that process of defining what is really the product and what are the kind of KPIs, if you will, that that product is expected to deliver by its consumers is really hard. And and I don't think there is like a silver bullet here. There's some ways to to get started, right? And and we keep talking about Monte Carlo. We talk a lot about what are the key elements of data health, what makes data reliable. And it's, it, it's, a, it's a great starting point. And it's a way for a data team to manage a lot of the issues that can happen. But really, at, at, at the end of the day, for a data team to be able to say, this dashboard or this data that we're pushing with census into Salesforce, what does it mean for it to be reliable is really context dependent, right? It depends who's looking at it, when they're looking at it, what what they're expecting it to be. And, and I don't think there's like a, a single answer. It, it needs to be defined in the context of the specific application. And, 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 and a lot of times with SLAs, you hear the, the terms three nines and five nines and, and nine nines and, and whatever. And, and part of the exercise is also, I think, aligning on what what level of reliability we expect, right? Yeah. I worry a lot about, again, I think most of our, the people that work in, uh, you know, that we serve, right, in our respective companies are not necessarily software engineers and they're not necessarily people who have historically built products like Gmail. Mm -hmm. And so not only do we have to teach them, I guess, like, hey, you should think in terms of reliability and and degrees of of precision here, but I also would worry, me personally, that... you don't want people to kind of jump too deep into kind of trying to build a very precise, you know, measurement when you're going to lose the forest for the trees, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and so how do you advise people who are just getting going on this around how do you start like course? How do you start with cuz you could you could start with a 5 nines on something trivial and uninteresting and effectively useless, but you've measured something. You've now spent three months founding a way to measure the thing that is not important, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, a lot of people will rat hole into those things. So so it's almost better to have like one nine of like something <laughs> exactly. that ma- matters a lot, right? Uh, one nine for the people who are listening is like 90% <laughs> accuracy, which sounds high maybe to some people, but it's really terribly low for most people in technology. So, so yeah, how do you, how like, again, what heuristics would you give someone who's trying to do this? Yeah, no, that, that's a great, it's a great question. And, and that's something we do with our customers when they get started with us, right? I think the, the first advice would be to map what are those critical products that you want to control for, at least start, right? And what are the pipelines that are driving data into those products, right? And, and that could be very complex. Those could be, could be huge pipelines, but, but understanding what they are is actually the first step. And then the second step, I think, is to put a lot of, at the end of the day, very standard validations around it. And we've worked at Monte Carlo to really automate 
and do that out of the box, right? So, and I, I'm talking about things like measure data freshness. Like, are you still getting the data that, that you're expecting or has something stopped coming in? Measure volumes, make sure that, that you're getting as much data as you expected, not, not too much, not too little, right? Both of those could be indicators of issues. Check the schema, like, has anything changed? Are you missing a field that, that you really care about? Or, or do you have a new field that you should care about? Or has the type changed, right? And, and also check the distribution of the data, right? Like, are you getting nulls where you expect to get values? Are you getting dollars instead of cents? Are you getting duplications where, where you had your unique IDs? So what we advise is to put all checks and validations in place. And we've built an extremely scalable way to do that. That works essentially out of the box. And the third step oftentimes looked over is to to make sure that when those validations fail, there's a clear process of how to go about it, right? It's very easy to generate a lot of alerts on things that are broken in your system. It's another I mean, at matter- a cer- At a certain scale, right? Something is always broken. Yes, yes. And and that scale is not as huge as you might think. Which, so yeah. I think, I think I, I, honestly, I think that would surprise people that- at a certain scale, every you're, there is guaranteed to be an alarm going off. I, I actually, I, I, I wonder how many people understand that that's happening at most most tech companies. Is that like at a certain scale, you're 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 you're, you're for sure failing in something and somehow, even though the user experience of your product is functional, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and the largest tech companies have. Millions of alerts open at any point in time, and, and and even a small startup. I don't know where the cutoff is, but at some point, not too late in the journey, you start having operational issues all the time. And then the same goes for data, right? Like if you have, if you built several dozen pipelines and you're using a handful of resources of source of data sources, and you're and you're creating several dozen data products, right? Dashboards or, yeah. or products that people use. You're very likely having operational issues multiple times a day, and 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 that's just something to recognize, right? And, and and I agree with you. It's not obvious. Like people think, oh, of course, it works all the time, but but the reality I mean, is, it, it's going to be right? like. Yeah, like when you get water out of the tap, right? Let's go all the way to the normal, you know, human being experience there's a whole chain of events that lead to the water coming out of your tap. Any of those gauges could be like red at some, some yeah. form and you and I don't necessarily know. And so you don't think about it. You just think, well, the water's coming out of the tap. Everything is fine. They're like, well, maybe not. Yeah, uh, there's a lot that goes into into making that happen, right? And it, it's just the reality of when a system is com- complex and there, when there's a lot of people involved in building it, it's just human nature. Things will break. Things will change. It's just it, it's just there. And, and oftentimes see, so it's better than... Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go, no, please, please. Oh, no, I, I think like our, our, our advice would be think about how you manage it, right? Like figure out how, you, how do you first detect those issues as early as you possibly can, and then how do you resolve them as quickly as you can? And maybe some of them are preventable too, right? Learn, but one of the things, I, one of the things I, 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 like, I kind of worry about, right, is we're squishing, I think, because our products are taking off and, and like, people are really investing in, in the data ecosystem now, I think we're squishing like decades worth of what we've learned in the world of software engineering into a very short period of time. And so what's, for example, something that management should learn if you're about to install alarm? I worry that you're going to install an alarm, right? And then people are going to freak out. And that's, that's, then you're going to be unhappy that you installed the alarm. <laughs> so, so, so 
So how do you, how would you, forget products per se, like, and tools, how would you get an organization to, to grow and adapt into being kind of alarm and reliability aware that it's like a journey, never a perfect state? Yeah, exactly. I think that's exactly the, the kind of third piece of the puzzle after you've figured out what to monitor and how to monitor it. It's, and this is what sets apart like our most successful customers from the rest is adopting a, an operational mindset around it, right? Just recognizing, and, it's, and I see a lot of data leaders are recognizing it, is trust and reliability are not, not to be taken for granted. Like it's not going to just work, no matter how, how hard you try. And that really you need to, to manage for SLAs, right? And 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 maybe one line is 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 just fine, right? For a lot of applications, nobody is going to die if if it works only ninety percent of the time, right? But you want to manage it, right? You want to make sure it's not ten percent of the time, and you want to make sure that when it's broken, people are aware that it's broken or not burnt by using wrong data for that matter, and and being really disappointed later that they did, right? So it's all about managing it, and then the way you manage it is. You adopt operations around it, right? Like you make sure those A are like are actionable and, and 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 come at a reasonable volume. Like you could alert on any single issue, but like does it even matter? Like should anyone care? And and so you want to make sure that you're getting a good amount of actionable alerting to the right people that actually can that can actually act on them, and you're giving them all the context to solve them within a reasonable amount of time and to communicate to the stakeholders in an effective manner, right? Like, and, and adopting that mindset, that operational mindset is really a super important piece of the puzzle that's, that's oftentimes overlooked, right? And it has to come from the top, right? Like you have to have leaders in the data team that recognize it and that are willing to, to spend the time and the resources to, to do that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I agree with you that it has to come from the top. And... I think about it as an operational mindset is a set of approaches and culture and tooling, right, for, for managing an inbound kind of set of alerts and, and maintaining kind of processes to, to fix it. But I, I also think that in high-performing organizations that, that are very operational, the, they, they take certain failure in stride, right? It's... I would not be surprised, and I'm sure you've seen this, or tell me if you haven't. And other, I mean, I almost wouldn't believe you if you haven't seen it. Where people turn on these kinds of alarms for the first time and freak out, right? They get mm-hmm. like three P1s at the same time, and they're like, now what do I do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, am I going to be in trouble? And, and it, it's like, I would almost, that'd be my advice almost for leaders, is like you have to make it safe at the beginning to fail, because maybe you're going to turn on the even the one nine, and like you said, it'll be ten percent. And like y- your first meeting shouldn't be like you're the worst engineer of all time, you're the worst data analyst of all time. It should be how do we make this better, right? Yeah. And here's something that I imagine would be important that is not necessarily product, but more like teaching them how to do postmortems. Would yeah. be something I I, I I I would I would think about a lot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I fully agree. Adopting that kind of take where a software product failing is not is not really failing. It's actually failure if you do not know about it and and you get an angry phone call from your from whoever is consuming your 
your product, right? That's much True. worse. So if it was caught by the team and if it was acted on in reasonable time, like it doesn't mean that you, maybe you don't wake up in the middle of the night to fix a dashboard. Maybe it can wait for the morning. That's fine. But having that process to do it is is really okay. And and I think that's a critical piece of it. And like, and like you said, post-mortem, right? Like if, if you've ever done software engineering and, and you you have worse like you do blameless postmortems right it's never anyone's fault right it's it's the it's the process it's the operational flaws that that lead to to the vast majority of, of incidents right so recognizing that is 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 critical i think i agree with you yeah i, I think it's gonna really listen i've experienced it because you're right just like you i've been building and shipping software for some time but you know at the beginning of my career i worked on software that shipped in a box <laughs> you believe it. I know. Sounds crazy. But, you know, I, when I worked at Microsoft, the, the software was put in a box and then it would leave a factory. And so so there was no live operations. Right? There was no way a user could use our software and it would break while and they would call us like that. They would it would break. They would complain on the Internet, but there was nothing operational. And of course, that's now all shifted. Of course, everything, everyone, including me, has moved to the Web. But it was that was a great example of where you, you could have taken a veteran software engineer from Microsoft and a veteran software engineer from Amazon in those times, and you would have had a very different culture around postmortems, around operations. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think in the same way, data teams are gonna have to learn this. And and I think my my real question is like, how do we encourage a culture of like blameless kind of uh, uh, postmortems, but also you know, kind of failure is a, is a feature, not a bug, right? Like if, if failure yeah. is something you should be happy to discover because like you said, the alternative is probably that you don't even know that it's happening. <laughs> and so you, you'd never even improve because you wouldn't know. Yeah. No, it, it's a great question. I, 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 I wish I had a, I had the answers, right? Like, but in general, what we've been, and, and, and those of you who have heard of Monte Carlo probably have read some of our content, some, some, of, our, some of the things we've been publishing online. And, and the reason we've been publishing those is to to kind of help create that mindset, right? And kind of bring on some, some of those concepts and, and some of that culture in, into data teams. Because like you said, like not everyone has, has done operations in the software, in the cloud software engineering sense of the word. And, 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 and it's different, right? Like it's a different way of thinking about it. And, and, and even in engineering, by the way, I think not all software engineers understand this. And this is why site reliability engineers exist and, and ops people exist, right? And we don't see it in data yet, right? Like I, I don't you think, think there's a lot You of think people. we'll end up in that? That's a great question. Do you think we'll end up in a place where there are, that's a specialized role within the data ecosystem? I don't think so. Because I, I see that the exact same challenges, right? Like you have to... Think about how to create reliable systems. You have to put certain infrastructure in place. You have to manage your monitoring and incident response. Like all these, I, I don't see a fundamental difference there. At the, at the end of the day, data products are software products in many ways, right? And so I think it's very likely. I don't think we're there yet, but I think no. it's very likely that we will see people that that specialize in those roles. And like, how do we help a data team become more reliable in the same way that 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 software that, that site reliability engineers do it for, for software teams. I think it's entirely possible that it happens. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing I I, I see a lot of, and I don't know if this is more tied to the fact that I, of the variety of different people that I interact with versus you might interact with, but 
a lot of data teams, right? I see a high level of like a bifurcation today, right? And all of this is gonna, I, I pretty strongly believe is gonna merge into these great hybrid teams. But I see some data teams that are very product and engineering oriented to begin with, right? Especially in technology companies. And then I see data teams that are very finance kind of focused, mm -hmm. right? They were born, they're barely a data team by our standards. And they're, they're, they're folks that have kind of been, have been raised under a, a CFO of some sort to try to provide accurate revenue metrics. Especially if you're at Wall Street, then you know you, you, you can't get those wrong, right? And there's a, literally a document, right? That people sign and they, they don't want to go to jail. And yeah. so that to me goes against this, this, this embracing of failure because if the fear of failure is very, very high, so if I give the wrong numbers to Wall Street, I'm going to be in trouble, we're going to go to jail then you will, you will build a very different set of processes, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and then you don't get the same agility. It, so I'd almost think about, do, do you think about in terms of helping companies split certain kinds of mission critical things are so mission critical as to be, should follow a different development process in the data team versus this is the ones where you should have free reign and explore and embrace more failure? Like, is that... Is that something you help people think through? And, and if so, what, how should I, where, where should I embrace failure and where should I not? No, that's a great question. And like you said, some use cases in data, actually the ones that are maybe, that have been around for, for the longest are not very fault friendly, if you will. And, and the SLAs that, even if they're not articulated, the SLAs there are in, that are expected are incredibly high, right? Like you don't want to see a company pulling back their their earnings call data too frequently. Like it does happen, but you don't you don't want to see that happening a lot. And so that's a use case with super high SLAs, right? But and, not necessarily timeliness, right? It's like not a the SLA is much more tied to purely the semantic correctness of the data, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, you don't need a lot of throughput there. You don't need that data every day. You need it once a quarter, but it needs to be 100% and absolutely right. And I think that you would have a very different process for that compared to, for example, the dashboard that your head of sales is using every morning to look at sales numbers. You want that dashboard to be right as well, but maybe you can allow a little bit more fault there, right? And a little bit more time when that dashboard is is inaccurate in various yeah. ways. Because the implications of being wrong there are, are not as great, especially if you were able to tell the head of sales, look, this morning, it's not working. Don't look at it. We'll let you know later today or tomorrow when it's fixed, right? You've basically mitigated most of the most of the risk of, of failure there. And so I, I think you take a very different approach. And, and maybe the numbers that you report to Wall Street, I, I still think like tooling and operations can help there. Uh, it's not uncommon for problems to go unnoticed for months when you don't have monitoring in place and actually affect those reports. But I think there's also room there for a person pulling that report a good amount of time in advance and validating it with their own eyes and redoing and doing and redoing the math over and over again to make sure it works because you really want very high SLAs there. So I think it's perfectly legit. Yeah. I think it's there's there's one other access to this equation for me, which is like, which parts of your business do you want to be as innovative as possible, right? And 
calculating revenue is not something where you should be innovating, right? There's a reason we have gap accounting and it's like, we've all agreed, let, let's be boring and consistent about this. <laughs> and the few companies that have innovated on this have eventually had very bad things happen to them. <laughs> so, so, so the upside for innovation there is not very, not very high. But, you know, I, years and years ago, I met people who worked on software for fighter jets, right? And that was a great example of like, there's a component of that that was the avionics that needs unbelievable correctness, right? They just cannot tolerate error in that piece of code. So it, they used a totally different programming language and the rate of change, the rate of innovation on that software was very low. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they were okay with that because they, the, they, they just decided to sacrifice innovation on that tier of their, of, their, of their stack. And in exchange, they had other parts of the plane where you would be shocked at how Yahoo programming was going on there. I was like, I couldn't believe it. And so. I almost think that you should think about there's there's a there's a way of like where do you want to use data in ways that are highly innovative and, and, and you're willing to you want to embrace like you know what we are gonna screw it up every once in a while on purpose, right? Because we want to yeah. run experiments. That's I feel like where we should be landing, right? Is like figure out what the crown jewels are that you cannot mess with. But the rest, Facebook changes its homepage 24-7, right? And and yeah. th that's a good thing and it'll it'll make mistakes. But I, I don't know if a lot of data teams see it that way. I think they were born out of this desire to be just right. And, and so <laughs> I feel like we got to break them of, of this kind of reflex. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I totally agree. And, and this, is, this is part of the journey, right? Like to, to define, uh, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more, right? Like there's this like knob between innovation and reliability, right? And, and sometimes you introduce new processes and new tools and you can kind of break the frontier and, and make it overall better. But oftentimes you're, you're kind of trading off some of it. And, and yeah, I think a mature data, op operational data process would, would take that into account. And, and, and like you said, like figure out like what are the parts of the airplane that absolutely cannot fail uh, and what are the parts where we're okay failing and, and, and we can let loose and, and be a little bit more creative and, 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 and have a little bit more velocity, right? And, and our job as, as data vendors and, and is, is to help push that frontier, right? To, yeah. to make yeah. that trade-off or, or, or to, to find better, better ways to do it so that the trade-off is less, is less abrupt. But the, the trade-off yeah. will always exist, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I do. That is very much how I model our, our shared you know, job in this industry is like to, to, to effectively increase the rate of innovation, which, and so this will be helping them make these trade-offs and, and, and like you said, reduce the downsides. So, okay, I'm going to ask you a question. You, you brought something up. This is going to seem probably too philosophical, but uh, you, you touched on this in that there are, there's throughput and correctness, right? Like there's throughput and semantically correct data. Both of those things you can assign SLAs to, right? Where it's like, this data is correct, but it's stale, like, et cetera. But how, do, how does one adjudicate, I can't believe I'm going to ask this, what is true? Like, what is correct? <laughs> like, I, I remember talking to one person on the data team, this is a couple of years ago, and they said something pretty funny, but there's some wisdom to it. When they were working on a metric, they said they got it right when everyone was equally unhappy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. And if there is no stakeholders for your metric, then who cares? But in a world where there's ever-increasing sets of users and stakeholders, how do you help people? Or I don't even mean necessarily through Monte Carlo, the product, but like, 
How, how do people arrive at like agreement on what is true, what is correct? It's a great question, and you're, I, I think your friend was was absolutely right. I I think for starters, or or the foundation, at least from my point of view, is a agree on on what what we're going to even look at without agreeing that it's correct, but like where are we all going to take this information from, right? As long as we're taking it from multiple places and we all have our own data, we will never agree, right? So first of all, where do you take that data from, right? And, and This is almost know, like we're getting into like journalism, right? It's like, yeah. where is the where is the ground truth and where are we going to go get it from, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it, it is exactly right. And tools like Census help with that, right? Instead of some people working out of Salesforce and some people working out of the warehouse and then surprise discrepancies, maybe we can all work off of the same data set, right? So yeah. like that's that's the start, right? And then the next maybe next layer here is let's all understand what it means. How it was calculated, where is it coming from? How it, you know, what sources is it is it using and and how is it combining those sources to get the answer that we're looking at? And we may not all, maybe we end up in a place where we're all equally unhappy about it, but at least we understand. I'm not even sure we could reach that because how, like the set of transformations that take, let's say a set of invoices and turn that into a revenue metric, right? Per, I don't know, last 30 days. Even that computation is is code, right? SQL potentially, and, and or hopefully it's just SQL, but it could be more complicated. Even that is... You, you're, it, you, you almost have the task of like explaining software in English and having us agree that this is what the software is supposed to do. And y- y- like, I, I, even that is a difficult thing to get agreement on, right? Let alone the, the I think it's, it's easy to get agreement on. We care about revenue and we care about, it's from these sources. I think that's very yeah. achievable. So I think, I, I'm glad you bring that one up as the first. <laughs> that seems <laughs> unambiguous, thank goodness. I do think the transformation is hard to get consensus on because I don't know that everyone can, can, you can't just point it and say, this is proof, right? And this is yeah. like, trust me, I did the, the math right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's really, really hard. I don't, I'm not sure I have a great answer on how to do it. You hope that, that there's a handful of people in the company that, that fully understand the transformations and, and, it, and at least cross-check each other to yeah. make sure they make sense and have communicated the, at least the, the most important points and caveats about there's always a lot of those. But I will recognize that doing that in practice is is incredibly hard, and 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 I I I, I wouldn't claim to have solved this. But 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 I, but but I think that's just going through that process is is very helpful, right? Just creating clarity around it and transparency as much as you can, and going through the process will goes a long way to to getting to that. Nirvana, I think. And the third layer of that, by the way, is, is which ties to reliability, is like consistency, right? Whether we all agree on it, at some point, we all need to commit to it, right? And once we committed to it, the people that operate the system and, and also consume it have the responsibility to consistently use those metrics, right? And if we're changing the definitions, which is inevitable, that we all understand and we do it in a controllable, yeah. managed way. Do you think it's better to be randomly wrong by 1% at all times or consistently wrong by 1% at all times? You know, I, I don't know that that I'm qualified to answer that question, but what I've observed is that most people would prefer to be consistently wrong by 1%. And it's oftentimes the more efficient way to, to operate. Consistency is sometimes more important to, to human beings than, yeah. than correctness. And, yeah. and, and there's something about it that makes sense. 
Yeah, yeah. Plus, I guess if you're consistently wrong by 1%, then you could, in your mind, retroactively fix it. It's like, well, okay, all of our numbers were off by one. So yes. just, you can just all of time by one, right? Versus randomly off. I mean, I think if I could, this is really hard because I think people have trouble with this in all fields, except maybe finance, I suppose. I think we need to help people understand confidence intervals, that this is, we're lucky that most of these things are numbers, right? Most, most of the things we're talking about are numbers. And they, they not only can, in the same way that reliability is, is not a 100% concept, it's some, some number of nines, as mm -hmm. we like to say, I think a number is only so accurate, right? And it's, it's within a confidence interval, it's within a band. Mm -hmm. And that might be the only answer for people to estimate, like, what is true, what is correct, right? It's like, maybe we all just have to embrace that it's true plus or minus something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Yeah. But people are not very comfortable with this, right? It's, it's like, you, you can't really go to the, can you imagine going to your board meeting and going like, we made uh, $10 million, plus or minus $1 million. We're not sure. <laughs> right? It'd be like, uh, yeah, it would be weird to say, but I think the reality is that most companies do exactly that, right? I right? doubt there's a lot of companies out there that know their revenue 100% reliably. So yeah, maybe we need to be more explicit about it and kind of call it out. Like, yeah. here's the number I'm giving you and here's how accurate I think it is. Or here are the caveats, like here's what yeah. it includes or doesn't include or et cetera. Uh, yeah, I mean, we could get very precise and eventually pass that down as metadata if we wanted to be really fancy and then allow the stake, the user, right, to say, I only want to use data that has like 95% confidence versus 80% confidence. And then you can build different use cases based on that. And if you're willing to take higher error rates, then you can pull this extra data that has low fidelity, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. totally. You know, yeah, it's like a lot of this is, it's kind of fancy thinking right now, but, but I, I, again, as our field gets more sophisticated and embraces this stuff, I think they're gonna have to learn some of this. A game I like to play with people I stole this from a software estimation book years and years ago, is you ask people to estimate a number, right? Like how tall is the Pyramid of Giza? Mm -hmm. And, but you ask them to give you an interval where they're like 90% confident or 95% confident. Yeah. And people are so obsessed with being right because of school and how we're brought up. They will not give a wide interval. They'll give a very narrow interval on which you cannot possibly be 95% confident, yeah. right? So yeah, yeah. just, teaching people that the fact that a precise measurement actually has a wider band of confidence versus a rough measurement would be a huge improvement, I think, in the, in the data world. I agree. Yeah, no, I mean, we're, we're overconfident creatures and, and I, I, I totally agree. Yeah, we, we should all remember the, the limitations of our ability to, to know things precisely. And, and, and that's, that's, part of the, that's part of the journey. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Is there, you know, what's something like as we, as we, as we near the end of this thing, what, what's something that you think leaders on data teams should think about beyond what you and I just talked about? Like, is there anything that, you know, we didn't touch on that would help them kind of get closer to what you and I see as like high quality operational software teams? Like how, how do they, how do they accelerate their journey towards this beyond just purchasing our tools? I think, oh, that's a great question. I think just having, thinking about it like a product. And I liked that you kept bringing up analogies, like 
think about it anywhere from the water coming through your faucet or or the cloud service that you're using or or really any any product like think about it that way like what does it mean how do you get it to people in the way that is usable to them what are some of their expectations around that product what do they need to be successful with it like documentation right like kind of an obvious thing for a lot of software engineers but oftentimes with data you just get a dashboard and good luck so one of our customers uh, uh, they make a video for each new metric they make a little 10 minute like five minute video just explaining what the metric is because because otherwise they would never get it documented so <laughs> they make a little video which you know, something is better than nothing right and yeah like you said step it's one great. is we have to agree on what these numbers mean so you may as well tell people uh, yeah um, and I don't think there's rules on like what it could be a video if you like it could be a I don't know uh, a post on Instagram, if that's what you fancy, but but thinking, I, I think it'll it, just be memes. <laughs> Data mean, sets are just yeah. going to be memes from here on out. That's how we do it at Monte Carlo. You can use memes or or giffies, but but yeah, I mean that that would be my only advice. Like think about it as a product. Think how about how the consumer is going to experience this and 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 what they need to really leverage it to, the, to its full yeah. extent. Yeah, yeah, I think that's. I think I would echo you here. It's like I. I think the the journey of any single person or a team is to create higher and higher amounts of leverage, right? And and therefore like reach more people or have higher impact with whatever you're whoever you're reaching. And you can either scale that with more and more humans doing more and more service work, right? Like lawyers, or you you create a product and and mm-hmm. you you like you said, yeah, you, you Part of me also thinks like leaders should learn to say no. On data teams, probably that, that, mm-hmm. you you kind of have to narrow the focus in order to be a product, which might be difficult given that you're the one team. It's like everyone wants to know the answer to things, and it's always back to you. That that's got to be a, something that is hard for the individual contributors to do. So I think leaders should probably figure out how to help their team say no to things. Yeah, I think PMs and product and software teams are very good at this. I mean. Apple even made it famous, right? Like, oh, we say no to so much stuff. And so I think it's very famous in that world, but I think in the data world, you, you, it's because it's such a service kind of experience. Like, people kind of don't feel like saying no. They just say yes to things. Yeah. And it can uh, be confusing because we always want to do self-serve analytics and all that. But I agree with you. It's to do it well, you have to narrow the sco- scope somehow and decide, like, what you're going to make available and what not and what needs you're going to serve and what not and and stick to it yeah yeah well hopefully that's not too uh too tall of an order to for all of our uh friends in the data world lior listen this was a really delightful conversation man thank you same here really enjoyed it boris it's it's very it's very it was a lot of fun i'm I'm glad to see more people who have a background in security end up doing data products this is (laughs) just just very glad to have more of us in here (laughs) totally we'll bring everyone from security Excellent, excellent. We'll have a special event. All right, man. Take care. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Well, folks, until next time, this is The Sequel Show. Special thanks to Joe Stevens for our theme song. And thanks to all of you for listening and supporting the show. If you haven't already, subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts to get notified for future episodes.